This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. AP headline, looking for a new car under $20,000? Good luck. Your choice has dwindled to just one vehicle. Yes, the Mitsubishi Mirage, the only vehicle that retails for under 20 grand. And as befits its name, Mitsubishi has announced the Mirage will be going away in 2025. Mitsubishi's least expensive vehicle at that point would be the Outlander Sport SUV, 24,600, including shipping. The average car now is above $48,000, which is 25% more than before the pandemic struck three years ago. But you know what I'm really worried about? Where this will hit the hardest? Tell us what we're looking at, Johnny Gilbert. We all want you to win this brand new car! That's not even Johnny Gilbert, the longtime Price is Right announcer who is retired at the age of 95. But now, the Price is Right, which gives away a lot of Kia Sorentos and Toyota Corollas, is clearly in a bind. Obviously, everyone who comes on down knows there are no new cars under $20,000. They read the Associated Press. Unless, of course, it's the Mitsubishi Mirage. So what's the Price is Right going to do with their pricing games? I'll tell you what they're going to do. So let me show you the first number in the price of a Toyota Corolla. Two. They just give the contestants the first number. So we're playing a game called Pathfinder. Right now you're standing on the first number in the price of the Kia Soul. Let's put the two up there, please. What's bad for the American consumer is worse for the American game show viewer. This, just giving the people Spotting them a two, it's the enemy of drama. It's as if the family feud always spotted the contestants the number one answer. That answer, of course, being the butt. I'm very, very concerned. I take the prices right quite seriously. I'm trying to keep my stress levels at a boil without going over. There is one solution. Well, two, maybe. They could start giving away Bentley and Benzes, which have various prices. Or... They can offer up an item for bid that could be under 20000 could even be under 10000 but now sells at an average price of just above 29000 Yes, a used car! I bid $1. On the show today, I listen for the first time, my virgin ears is a proxy for yours, to the number one song in the nation, the country music and conservative pundit hit, Rich Men of North Richmond. But first, in 1970, Martha Hodes, then 12 years old, was flying back from Israel when her plane was hijacked. 
It was actually part of a massive multinational hijacking operation that if you hadn't heard of it or remembered it, it's kind of not to be believed. But for Martha, it was also not to be dwelt upon. She didn't even think of the event on a daily basis or a weekly basis until her memories were triggered during 9-11. Martha's new book, My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering, digs deep into how memories can be forgotten, retained, and changed over time. Martha Hodes, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In 1970, Martha Hodes, then a young girl, was flying back from Israel and she was hijacked. You would think that would cause an obsession. You would think wrong. It wasn't until 2001 and the events of 9-11 that memories were unlocked, but actually it would be more accurate to say that the question of memory was prompted. Martha Hodes is an acclaimed historian, and she went about examining the story of her hijacking like she has and like she's taught students to excavate their own personal history against the backdrop of contemporary events. The book, My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering, is fascinating and in many ways, the most coincidentally surprising book I've read in many, many years. Martha Hodes, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. We could start with the events of 1970. We could start with the events going on in your head. But what I want to do is, if I met you in the year 2000, would I be able to take a seminar, a class, where you taught people, where you taught students how to use history to figure out their own history and then write about history? What would that syllabus have been? Well, you know, I do teach a class, although I was not teaching that class in the year 2000. Yeah. I teach a class called Autobiography and History. It's one of my favorite undergraduate seminars that I teach. And I think I started teaching it maybe about 10 years ago. And in that class, I ask students, now these are college students, and most of them are 18 to 22 years old. I ask them to think about an event that happened to them in their past and to put that event in historical context through research. And that is what my book is. It's a deeply researched memoir. The students can pick anything, but it does have to be something with a historical context. And during the semester, we read all kinds of fascinating books by writers and scholars putting their own lives into historical context. So I'll just give you two quick examples about the syllabus. One of the wonderful books we read is by the historian Jonathan Scott Holloway called Jim Crow Wisdom, where he writes about the historian's view of African-Americans in the 20th century related to his own family. Another book I love to assign is the historian Annette Gordon-Reed, and she's written a wonderful memoir called Juneteenth. And again, she writes about, one of the things she writes about is her own experience growing up in Texas as a young African-American girl, and she puts that in deep historical context. And one of the things I ask my students to do is to answer the question, 
Why did this person tell this story this way? And that's one of the questions I asked myself when I was writing my hijacking and looking over my own record, the diary I kept when I was 12 years old. Is the point of that class to instruct the students that memory is impermanent and to distrust their, or at least be suspicious and skeptical of their initial impressions? Or is it a a deeper point that you could know that that is something that occurs, but there's still a way to weave it into bonafide history? I think it's, it's all of those. One of the things that I've had students do in that class is pick something that happened to them in their own pasts write down what they remember about it, hand that in, and then do some research about that event and match up their memories with their historical research. And that has been incredibly illuminating for the students and for me, because often their memories are not quite what the historical record holds. Now, historians always know that the historical record itself can often be a form of memory and that the the sources we use are often based on memory. So let's say you're researching a court case and you're reading the testimony in the courtroom. Well, that testimony is based on people's memory. Even a diary or a letter is based to some extent, not only on people's memory, but also on how people craft the stories they tell about their own lives. And that's one of the things that was really interesting to me in writing my hijacking. Yes. So I noticed that the book in chapters was organized. There was an introduction where you tell what happened. um, And the, the introduction was a lot about how you barely remembered it. Chapters one through three was about the hijacking. Chapter four was about the aftermath. And then you start weaving different strains about what different people remember, what was going on at the context of the time. And then I also further noticed that within each chapter, the structure was you started by reporting the sources outside of yourself about what happened. So you would report what Walter Cronkite was saying and how the New York Times covered it and how the Jerusalem Post covered it. That would be the first part of a chapter. And then your own remembrances to fill in what Walter Cronkite was saying would be the second part of a chapter. And I guess this is from your historian. I mean, there are many ways to make these decisions, but your historian training must have influence those decisions. Yeah. So I'm so happy you brought up the structure of the book because that was something that it took me a long time with a very patient and wonderful editor to figure out. And before I started writing the book, I wrote down everything that I remembered, which wasn't much. And that's in the opening chapter, just like you said, called What Happened. Then the book proceeds in parts. Part one is kind of what happened beginning to end so that the reader has that as a baseline. Part two is about the experience of my parents. Then parts three and four, and and within each part, there are many chapters. Parts three and four is me going back to reconstruct what happened using my own memories and many kinds of sources. And I bring the reader into the archives with me, whether that's um, the airline archives or the writings and political statements or autobiographical writings of our captors, the the members of the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, or um, documents I found at the Nixon Presidential Library where like President Nixon and Henry Kissinger, who was his national security advisor, are having these telephone conversations. And in those days in 1970, somebody made transcripts of these conversations. So you have like, hey, Henry, what's going on out in the desert today? you know, I think it, we know about transcripts of Nixon's conversations, by the way. <laughs> very, very, very interesting. And then the last part of the book, part five, is about 
when we got home. And that's also where I pick up a lot of the parts about memory. What happened was, on one day in 1970, three airlines were successfully, quote unquote, what kind of quotes? Air quotes. They were hijacked to a disused airstrip near Amman, Jordan. There was supposed to be a fourth, an LL flight but armed LL security guards killed a hot potential hostage taker and the other passengers detained the second hostage taker. LL was spared the fate that your TWA flight and a Swiss air flight and a British Airlines flight had imposed on them. Now this might blow the minds of someone who doesn't realize how common and quote unquote, successful skyjacking was in the 1970s and late 60s. So let's start with that. When it happened to you, what was your memory? What was your perception, your memory of your perception of what was going on? Is this a skyjacking? I've heard of skyjacking or this is how skyjackings go. And therefore you were thinking this is what might happen. Yeah. So in 1970, the most common kind of hijacking or skyjacking was, um, commandeering planes to Cuba. And that's kind of what was in everyone's mind. And that's what security in, in airports was geared toward. Um, so we were in the plane. We were flying from Tel Aviv to New York. The plane had just stopped, made a stop over in Frankfurt. And that's where our hijackers boarded the plane. And then I write about this in the book. In my memory, suddenly somebody was running down, two people were running down the aisle from the back of the plane toward the cockpit. And they were shouting in a language I couldn't understand. They were speaking Arabic. Um, and, you know, people were frightened and didn't know what was happening. They went up to the cockpit, they entered the cockpit. And then one of the, as we called them in those days, stewardesses or hostesses came walking down the aisle and just said, there are some people in the cockpit talking to the captain. People immediately thought we're going to Cuba, you know, Cuban hijackings in those days were not dangerous affairs. You would stop the plane, you'd have some cigars, maybe a meal. The kids thought, The oh. word you used was prank. Yeah, exactly. And that's how it was talked about in the press. And I read about it in the New York Times. And even Fidel Castro joked about it. Monty Python had a humorous sketch about, you know, a hijacker in a cockpit, wisecracking with a captain. And everybody thought, oh, you know, we'll stop in Havana. And some of the school kids thought, oh, we'll miss a few days of school because this was Labor Day weekend. We're all about to start school. But that, of course, was not the case. Um, this was a much more serious endeavor. And um, the most spectacular episode of air piracy in history up to that point, with the hijacking successful of these three planes and the unsuccessful El Al, and then also a fifth plane, a Pan Am, which was flown um, to Cairo and all the passengers were evacuated and it was the plane was blown up on the tarmac at the Cairo airport. Right, but we should say there were a few planes blown up during this whole ordeal, but you make clear early on there was one fatality and that was the would-be hijacker of the LL flight and that's it, no passengers were killed. And they told you that they had no intention to harm you. Of course, they were telling the world something else so that their demands would be taken seriously. But people on the plane were frightened. You were 12. Your sister Catherine was 13. You were and are Jewish. Did that play into your fears more? There's so much unknown and there was discomfort, but was there a real fear besides the unknown and the fact that they had guns? Was there a plausible fear that you would be killed? Wonderful question and touches upon so much. Um, 
You are absolutely correct for a successful hijacking mission to take place. The hijackers have to tell the world they're going to destroy the planes and the passengers. On the other hand, the hijackers told us you're going to a friendly country with friendly people. That's a quotation. We were told it's only a hijack. Eventually, we were told we're not going to harm anyone. And in fact, the internal policy of the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine was not to harm anyone. But there were also ways in which um, other passengers experienced certain quite fearful episodes. Now, we were children. I was 12. My sister was 13. And honestly, our captors were very nice to us. They jumped rope with the children. Um, at one point, with the life, with parts of the life yes, raft, and, right? and then, that's what they you use know, the jump rope. Exactly, yeah. we, with the, the string that comes with the life raft, they, they jumped rope with us, which I never forgot. Um, at one point, my sister was sitting in her airline seat crying because she was sad. And one of the commandos walked by and said, don't cry, we have children too. And that, that felt very comforting to her. She remembered that. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but during my research, I learned that some of the other passengers had experienced more frightful interrogations because what the captors were trying to figure out was who were the most valuable hostages. They wanted to trade hostages for Palestinian prisoners um, in Israeli jails. And so they were trying to figure out um, the, the connection of each hostage to Israel. And this is a, this is a confusing and complicated part of it. Um, it is not true, and this is one of the enduring myths of the, of the hijacking, um, that our captors let all the non-Jews go and kept the Jews on the plane. That's, that's simply not true. But it was confusing because the captors asked the hostages their religion. And they asked us our religion because they were trying to figure out everyone's connection to the state of Israel and who would be a valuable hostage. The Popular Front, you know, as I said, I read their own material from their archive, and they made a distinction between Jews and Zionists. Um, so they they wanted to know if you were, you know, if you were somebody who could plausibly be kept longer and then traded for Palestinian prisoners. The hard part is, you know, that they they didn't, you know, they're they're human beings and they're they're flawed and they didn't carry everything out exactly as they probably planned to. So they they didn't ask people their views about Zionism. They just asked them whether they were Jewish or not. And that led some of the Jewish hostages to be quite fearful, understandably. Now, I should say, my sister and I are Jewish. We were raised in a very secular New York Jewish household. We were spending the summer with our mother in Israel. She had gone there to help start Israel's premier modern dance company, the Bet Sheva Dance Company. She was not in Israel um, as a Zionist in any way. You know, she was there as a dancer. So we didn't come to this hijacking with the same kind of background as many American Jews in 1970. And one of the things that happened was, you know, we didn't come with any narratives. We hadn't gone to Hebrew school. Um, so we, my sister and I learned a history that not only we didn't know, but many American Jews in 1970 didn't know. Um, we were very interested in the stories that our captors told, that they had lost their homes as children in 1948. Many of them had, many of the members of the Popular Front were children in, in the 1948 war. We were, we were empathetic. Um, there were also people on the plane who were Holocaust survivors. Um, their experience was, was very frightening, even though the Holocaust was a Christian European, not a Palestinian endeavor. Needless to say, they were still triggered. Yeah. 
And my sister and there I, were rabbis on the plane. Yes, that's right. And my sister and yeah. I, you know, we we felt sorry for everyone. We felt sorry yeah. for the Holocaust survivors. We felt sorry for our captors and what they had gone through as children. Um, and one of the things I began to learn was about the kind of um, irreconcilable narratives um, on the in the Israel-Palestine conflict um, that each side tells different histories. Well, you did, and you also did hide your Star of David necklace, or was that your sister? That was my sister, yeah. and she. So she was wearing a, a little Star of David necklace, and the woman in our row, there were three seats to the row, and the elderly woman in our row told her to take it off when the it became clear who the hijackers were. And so my sister yanked it off and it disappeared into the somewhere between the seats and she never found it again. Um, it was interesting. So I would say some of the Jewish hostages were also interested in the cause of our captors and sympathetic. Others were not. Others stuck with the narratives that they knew and they had learned. But my sister and I, because we didn't come to it with certain ideas, we we learned a history that we found was we found quite illuminating and interesting. And we should point out the this band of hijackers were not jihadis. They were in fact Marxist Leninists. They were athe you know, they would I don't know if they were atheists, but they had no problem with, say, atheists, and I guess by doctrine, no problem with Jews per se. And they made a distinction in your book talks about how the vernacular of their language would um lead one to not see so many distinctions between Jews and Zionists, but they did ideologically make a distinction. But when you talk about how you were interested in their views, you of course know about the concept of Stockholm Syndrome. How can you evaluate where your interest and empathy starts and maybe where Stockholm Syndrome might have intruded? Yeah. So first of all, um, you're absolutely right. The Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was a Marxist-Leninist group. Their founder, George Habash, was a Christian. They were an anti-imperialist. They would define themselves as anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist. They advocated for a singular state for Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists. Um, they were also um, advocates of what was called at the time women's liberation. And, um, yeah, the female. Did every flight have at least one female hijacker? Um, I think that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, ours certainly did. And in fact, the the women commandos on our plane were the were the ones in charge. They were also advocates of what they would call at the time modernization. You know, and also I'd say um, antagonists of cons what they considered to be conservative Arab governments. They were just to fill this out a little bit longer. Um, they were the captors. The leaders of the PFLP were members of the educated middle and upper classes. They were doctors, lawyers, intellectuals. They recruited members from the refugee camps. Um, and so, you know, those the, the members of the PFLP had, had more of a class variety, but the leaders were from this particular class. They spoke Arabic, English, French. You know, it's so interesting about Stockholm Syndrome. Um, I have to say, first of all, that Stockholm Syndrome has never been recognized by medical professionals. The term comes from a 1973 Swedish bank robbery in which the hostages identified with their captors and were hostile to their rescuers. None of us on that plane were hostile to the idea of being rescued, none of us. So in that sense, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't 
apply, not only because it didn't exist in 1970, but also because it's unrecognized. But I just want to say one more thing about this. Um, I did read about Stockholm Syndrome when I was researching the book, because of course, it's something that people bring up all the time. And I found the most interesting um, piece of writing by a Yale, um, a Yale psychiatrist named Walter Reich, who made this point, you know, he, he said, why shouldn't someone exposed to new views express sympathy? And why assume even that captivity automatically cancels out logic or judgment? So we all wanted to get home. Most of the, most of the Palestinian resistors, most of the Palestine Liberation Organization did not agree with the strategy of hijacking. That was almost unique to the Popular Front, who were a minority, but very influential minority in the Palestine Liberation Organization. So we didn't want to be hijacked. We didn't want to be there. But like this psychiatrist had to say, that doesn't cancel out learning something new and being curious about it and feeling sorry for people who have a cause, even if their strategies and tactics are causing us harm in a place we don't want to be. I know what you're thinking. Mike, are we going to stop right there on this incredible story? We are not. We continue our conversation with Martha Hodes tomorrow, where we talk about how memories can flood back after triggering events, like how 9-11 triggered these memories for Martha. And we'll talk about the different response that Martha had from her sister over the same events. That's tomorrow. And now the spiel. The number one song in the country is called Rich Men North of Richmond, and it was made the number one song in the country, well, I guess because it struck the ears of many a listener, perhaps many a conservative listener is soulful and tuneful and great with lyrics, but also thanks to the advocacy of many a conservative media pundit, uh, a lot of podcasters, a lot of uh, radio hosts getting behind this song by Oliver Anthony. In fact, the New York Times today put the song on the front page and consistently identified Oliver Anthony as Oliver Anthony Music, which is a little like identifying a person as Howard Kupferstein Esquire. So Mr. Esquire then said to me, no, so the guy's name is Oliver Anthony. It turns out he makes music. But let's discuss the music he made. So far, all we know is the rich men north of Richmond. I have to say, I've never heard it. I haven't heard it. I haven't read about it, except I know that it exists. I subscribe to a few tip sheets, if you will, if this was 1979. There are newsletters in my inbox, and a few of them have been mentioning in this, and then, like I said, it was on the front page of the Times. So let's do an experiment. I am going to listen to this song. I will listen, maybe you've not heard it before, but I will also give this, I'm going to make a prediction. I predict the song will strike me as a perfectly adequate country song. I predict the song will be tolerable, competent, and maybe knowing the only thing I know about it is conservatives like it, there'll be a sentence or two that, I don't know, sticks Joe Biden in the eye or says something that conservatives might rally around more than they rally around, I think, every other country song. And the last thing I am going to promise you, as I swear, I haven't heard it before, we're going to do this together. The last thing I promise you is that I'm going to get the title wrong when I keep talking about it. I keep saying, Richmond of North Richmond, it's rich men north of Richmond. You get it? Washington, D.C., those men. Okay, let's cue it up. Let's listen to the number one song in the country. I've been selling my soul, oh, working all day. Looking at the guy, Red Beard, probably 
should not allow the visual to intervene in my appreciation. I'll be quiet now and listen a little more. Good voice. What the world's gotten to yep. for people like me and people like you? People like you. Called it. Just wake up. Right. And not be true, but it is. Oh, it is. Living in the new world with an old soul. He's soulful. I like it. These rich men, north or rich men, Lord knows they all just wanna. Ooh, like how his voice control. broke there a little bit. Speaking of control. I know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do. Cause your dollar ain't shit, and it's taxed to no end. Oh, your dollar ain't shit. Now they've pulled back on the video and there's some animals there. All this is designed for me to love the song if I'm of the ilk that thinks the dollar ain't shit, and that's a problem. This guy's just so authentic. Not just miners on an island somewhere. Uh, Lord, we got <laughs> that was a little on the nose, street. Jeffrey Epstein reference. Nothing to heat and the whole beast milking welfare. Well, God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, wow. taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge drowns. That's a pretty explicit political message. <laughs> this is a little surprising as a thumb in the eye. But you know. There are songs by the Calypso artist, the mighty Sparrow, that are just as pointed and just as vocal about that point of view. Yeah, I could see why Charlie Kirk or Ben Shapiro or Dan Bongino would get behind this song. Pretty good. With an old soul, these rich men know the rich men. you do and then I don't think you know but I know that you do cause your dollar ain't shit and it's taxed to no hen cause the rich men north the rich men some good picking that's some good picking Oliver Anthony alright we end with a trill I've been selling my soul. Dakota. Working all day. Cut to the dog. Overtime hours for bullshit pay. Creed Accord. Okay, that was less anodyne than I thought it would be. I, by the way, you should know I hadn't read the front page article in the New York Times, so I did not know there would be references to obese welfare as, uh, recipients or Epstein Island. That was not Tim McGraw there. But you know what? If there is a contingent of Americans that believe the things that Oliver Anthony was referencing, then it's natural, and I don't think so terrible, that there is going to be art for those Americans, art that expresses those point of views. Art that makes a reference to a pedophile island because people, when they talk, talk about pedophile island and you know it's a Jeffrey Epstein reference. I don't need to agree with the messages of all my artists. Some of my favorite artists have totally contradictory messages, right? They say the best things in life are free. You could tell that to the birds and bees, just give me money, same band. They were named the Beatles, who wrote, I don't care too much for money, money can't buy you love. Or my favorite artist, 
Springsteen has a song called The Factory, which is about how bad it is to work in a factory and how it grinds you down. End of the day, factory whistle cries, men walk through these gates with death in their eyes, and you just better believe, boy, somebody's gonna get it. And then he has about a dozen other songs about how bad it is when the factory closes down. And that's not even contradictory. That is actually the experience of a lot of people who don't like the factory, but like it less when there is no factory. Neil Young saying, let's impeach the president. I don't think we should have impeached the president. Not that president. It was about George W. Bush. Okay, it was a pretty bad song, and it did not even chart, but I'm glad it exists, just like I wouldn't wish this song or even its ascent to number one out of existence. We are a pluralistic society. I'm glad these attitudes are taking the form of a well-rendered guitar tune and not another angry blog post. In fact, I would listen to that song over and over and over again before I listen to even 30 seconds of conservative pundits like Matt Walsh from About to Play, who helped us drive the song to number one, telling me what the song means. Okay, go up to almost any guy at any bar in any blue-collar part of the country and ask them about welfare, and they will say something very similar to what Anthony says in that song. Almost all of them will. And yet Republicans are afraid to even mention the subject for fear that they'll lose the votes of the very people who are being scammed by this system. I think he's right on the sociology, but wrong on the politics. Republicans say that all the time. But think about how much of the culture is tilted away from people who cotton, obviously cotton to the melody and message of Oliver Anthony. And I'm not even talking about highbrow parts of the culture or middle highbrow like Succession. I love that TV show, but man, did it dominate the culture. And you know how many people watched? 2.9 million viewers. It was everywhere online. It was in every newspaper, every podcast. I talked about it. But it's less than 1% of the population in a tizzy about a cultural product that almost no one saw. Or take a song like Fight Night by Migos. You know that song? It's pretty well known. It's definitely well played in hip-hop circles. I cannot even approach playing any of that song, and not just for offensive lyrical content. One would hope that the vast majority of America would disagree with the values such as they are expressed in that song. All right, I'm talking about a song that you don't know what it sounds like or what they say. Can we maybe try to give the audience a little bit of a taste, Joel? I do not want to get banned by my internal FCC, but no one that I, well, not no one I know of, objected or caused a big ruckus about that song. People loved singing that song. You know, the 2019 U.S. Women's National Soccer Team won the World Cup, sprayed each other with champagne as they were singing this song in, in the locker room. Good, fine, no problem. Again, pluralistic society. But consider this description of rich men of North Richmond in the New York Times today. 
The song's populism unmistakably leans right, resulting in an original track perfectly primed for a hyperpolarized moment when conservatives perceive themselves as embattled and politics unrelentingly washes into every other aspect of culture, be it sports, movies, or pop music. Yeah, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of songs, pieces of culture that unmistakably lean leftward that are perfectly primed for a hyper-polarized moment when liberals or members of the Democratic coalition perceive themselves as embattled. I know the authors of the graph I just read agree with that. That's why they're saying that politics unrelentingly washes into every aspect of culture. Another way of saying that point, which I agree with, by the way, another way of saying that is that the massive weight of the culture is expressing progressive opinions. And so this is going to lead to a backlash, a backlash that was sure to happen with the very small aspects of the culture that could be influenced by conservatives. Or maybe it's not so small. Jason Aldean had a much more accusatory, less musical song about trying that in the small town that also benefited from being championed by the right. I do not know if I'll be listening to Rich Man of North Richmond too much for fun. I'll play it for uh, my wife or anyone who hasn't heard it, and I'll see their faces crinkle up, I'm sure. Not just because they don't like the sentiments of the song, but they're not going to be country music fans, the, pl- the ones I play it to. If they were, they'd already know the song. And I will say this, if you want a great country music song that I couldn't stop listening to when I first encountered it, try My Church by Marin Morris. But in a name of pluralism, market forces, a powerful vocal and great elocution on the word bullshit. I get the popularity of the song. I really do. I don't think that it was necessarily just a product of the orchestration of the forces of the right or right-wing podcasting and radio. I would like to think that even without the Q Anon-ish elements, this song would still strike a chord. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The Senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca stays above the fray as CLO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>